This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hi, Art Curious listeners. I am back with you here today with a bonus episode with another fantastic interview that I recently did with an author named Kevin Townley. We spoke about his book, which is called, wonderful title, Look, 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 Look Again, Buddhist Wisdom Reflected in 26 Artists. Look, 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 Look Again by Kevin Townley teaches beautifully about the five wisdom energies found in Tibetan Buddhism. He points out that these same energies are present in secular art. And in this new book, Kevin leads us to, invites us in, and sometimes springs upon us, the perennial wisdom in the worlds of artists from Artemisia Gentileschi to Hilma of Klint all the way to Marilyn Minter. And all 26 artists that he profiles, by the way, are women. This book is really fun. I have to say it. So fun, so entertaining, so easy to read. And it's also what the author calls a mad riot of interconnections. So we're understanding a little bit of everything from art and Buddhism to mandala principles and spiritual pursuits, what it was like to grow up goth in the 90s, the theories of Marshall McLuhan, and a mongoose, just to name but a few. And if I may add, there's also a wonderful reference to one of the best movies ever made, Clue. So there you have it. Kevin Townley is a meditation teacher, a filmmaker, writer, and an art savant who turns his unique gaze upon these 26 artists and magnifies the power and meaning of the five Buddhist wisdom energies through explorations of their artwork. And rather than trying to explain these energies, he reveals them to us in familiar visual language while, of course, pushing the boundaries of what we may have thought we saw in these artworks in the first place. I cannot recommend this book highly enough. It is, like I mentioned, very fun and engaging and funny and wonderfully entertaining, just as much as it is eye-opening and informative. So please enjoy this conversation with Kevin Townley. Kevin Thomas Townley Jr., welcome to Art Curious. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, I am, Jennifer. I'm beside myself. Oh, I am so excited to talk with you. I think as we were saying just a moment before we jumped on mic here and before we pressed record, I loved this book. I am still loving this book. And it was a wonderful, surprising, fun, exciting, and interesting read. So for listeners of Art Curious who might not be familiar with your work yet, could you please tell us a little bit about you? Because I'm especially interested in your background, both as someone who's learning about Buddhism and living Buddhist lifestyle, and also as someone who is an art appreciator. Yes. Well, I mean, if you've ever heard, if you ever were warned against being a jack of all trades and master of none, I'm I'm the cautionary tale. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm an artist. I'm a, an actor. I'm a singer. I'm a writer. I'm a meditation teacher. Uh, you know, if it glimmers and uh, is enticing, I move towards it. But basically, I think what I really learned uh, through my path of studying Buddhism and uh, teaching meditation is that kind of apex or the pinnacle of a Buddhist life is an artistic one, is to live 
artfully. And as I've studied artists, I've, I've been a museum tour guide for many years. I've, I live in New York, but I've traveled to Chicago and DC and Boston and Philadelphia and have given art tours in all of their great museums. And what you start to learn, or what I've started to learn, is that for great artists, you know, art isn't a part-time job. Even, even if you have a part-time job to support your art, that you start to live artfully. You start to see the world creatively as a kind of interconnected piece that's inspiring and terrifying and consternating and all of these things. And this is also what happens to people as they start to meditate more. Just, you know, it doesn't have to be Buddhist meditation, but just sitting quietly with oneself, looking at the mind, you just start to see the way things are interconnected and how they inspire, inform, and terrify. <laughs> that's always <laughs> part of it this is scary to be an artist and scary to be alive it, it it's all of a, it's all of a piece and so i guess through my work i just started to really see the way that the buddhist view and the artistic view complemented each other and in fact from my point of view are kind of one and the same i love that i wanted to know i know you mentioned this kind of at the very beginning of your book but for those who haven't read it yet what brought you or where did you come from first did you come from the art perspective first or the buddhist perspective first or were they always like a simultaneous entwined thing well it's interesting yeah they they kind of always were entwined but i didn't really realize it i think i was mm. exposed to art appreciation first in my book, I mention uh, Sister Wendy Beckett, you know, the art yes. man who had the BBC. <laughs> I always loved her growing up because she talked about art in such like a funny, frank, yes. informed, but like asymmetrical way. Like she would say things that you would never think of. But then looking at the art piece, you're like, oh, my God. Of, yeah, of course. Yes. And it, she kind of gives you the 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 power and the authority to look, you know, because art can be intimidating. You think you need like an art degree to like look at, you know, whatever, a Rembrandt painting or a Georgia O'Keeffe or whoever it is. But what she was kind of saying is like, no, the, the, the impulse to create is a human impulse, which we all share. And we share it with all iterations of human beings down through time. Like, what she what in her first episode she talks about the caves of Lascaux and she says yes. art painting doesn't get better it changes but it, it doesn't get better it painting starts at the top and so the creative impulse starts at the top it doesn't get more sophisticated it doesn't get better it uh evolves and uh takes on different trappings and whatever so like that 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 seed of uh, wanting to look, wanting to communicate, wanting to create is like so in, embedded in human beings. And then similarly, you know, so th that, that I guess kind of came first, but when I was kind of introduced to Buddhism, as I started to kind of read about it, it was like, oh, this is already how I think. Like, I didn't realize it was called something, but it's actually called Buddhism. <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> Buddhism, you know, whatever, it's considered a great world religion, but a lot of people don't even think of it as a religion. And I, I always invite people to define it however you want, of course, but like I invite people to consider it as kind of like a, a perspective shift or a philosophy almost. It's not an intellectual gambit, but it, yeah. but it, it's a way of looking at the world. And, and 
to me, what is offered by Buddhism and what is offered by art is the same thing, which is the invitation to take another look at what you take for granted, giving yourself permission to take a second look and be like, oh, uh, or reconsider what you take for granted. I think that's kind of how I would define art appreciation and the Buddhist path. I really responded to that. That very much resonated me while reading your book because, you know, art, of course, is a form of communication in and of itself. But my background is as an art historian and also a curator. And I often see people telling me or asking me, you know, looking at one work of art saying, tell me what this means. You tell me exactly what this work of art is about. And I, you know, people don't always like it, but I like to throw the question back to them and say, you tell me what it means for you, because there's this belief that there might be one singular way to understand or see or appreciate art. And I firmly believe that that is not true. And so that was something that I found really inspiring about your book is that you're taking these 26 artists and you taught me ways to look at them very differently and look at these pieces. And in some cases, thinking about Vijay Lebrun, who is one of my personal favorite artists. Uh, oh, yeah, love her. Love her and seeing her in this new way uh, because of this perspective shift that you've given me. So I, I want to back up for a moment, if I may, and ask, you mentioned this again at the very beginning of the book. You talk about the note on the artists. But for our listeners, uh, how did you narrow down the artists that you chose to represent in this book, and also you chose only women, and I want to hear a little bit about those reasons as well. Yeah, so in contemporary like Western Buddhism, I mean, all, all are welcome, but just like by the numbers, demographically, uh, there are an exponentially large, exponentially larger number of women, female or female identifying people, uh, because it's. Though, of course, there are patriarchal trappings in in Buddhism, don't get me wrong. There's like a, there's more of an invitation to trust your own authority, to uh, trust your own experience. And there's no like real interlocutor. There's no like middleman telling you what to do, which I think is appealing in particular to marginalized groups. So the community that I work quite a bit with is called the Open Heart Project. It's an online Buddhist community. And the predominant number of the Sangha members or the community members are are women. And so the spearheader of this organization is called Susan Piver. And she has her own publishing wing, which is called Lionheart Press. And given my involvement with the community, and she she knew that I liked talking about art. She asked if I wanted to lead any kind of weekend retreat to her group. I did. I decided to talk about Buddhist principles through the lens of non uh, of secular art, and it was received well. And so she asked if I wanted to expand on it in in a book. And so, you know, when you give tours at a museum, you kind of have to go with what they have up. Right. And to this day, it's still like ninety five percent is probably a generous number uh, is men. Yes. Uh, or rather, I should say 5% are women, and that's the generous <laughs> Right. Uh, and so, and that might even be too generous. So, like, museums are do- doing some fancy footwork these days, trying to, like, just, you know, get their act together after, mm. you know, hundreds of years. Yeah. Uh, but, like, you kind of, I found, I was like, oh, well, mostly what I talk about in museums is men because that's what's on the walls. Right. And as a self-taught art appreciator, I 
realize like even as a feminist as a queer person as somebody who champions women's voices and stories I was like I don't know that much about a lot of women artists yeah it's like embarrassing and so given that that was my audience and a dearth in my education I was like I'm just gonna like look at women artists and I mean, it's, you know, topical these days a lot. lot, There are a lot more books and podcasts and conversations about it. But I was like, there, you can always have one more. Always. (laughs) It's not going to hurt. So, so there were like some women artists that I knew and loved and like Agnes Martin or uh, Leonor Feeney or uh, Nikita Sanfal. And then there were other artists that I discovered along the way who I, I knew that I needed a particular kind of art or I wanted to find a particular kind of medium that would support my thesis of the book, which we can get into later, which is kind of complicated. Yes, yes. But I do I do want to ask you about that because in, in your book, you're using these artists to talk about the five Buddha families as you're referring to them. Could you tell us yeah. a little bit about what the five Buddha families are. I know that's very complicated, uh, but if you can give me just an introduction to it, that would be awesome. Yeah, as simply as I can put it. So there, there is a style of painting in the Buddhist tradition, which is called mandala paintings. I mean, we've all probably seen like mandala coloring books, and maybe right. enjoyed, enjoyed them. They're intricate, circular shapes. So one of the themes that's explored in these mandalas, and the mandala you can kind of look at as a bird's eye view of like like a blueprint it's 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 a sacred abode it's a a circular architectural place but what that place is can be interpreted in many ways it can be looked at as like a literal place and there are stupas which are traditional places of burial or worship where you can circumambulate and pray or make aspirations and whatever so like they can be real places but they can also be seen as blueprints for the human being or of a community like a community can be a mandala a person can be a mandala the universe can be a mandala the the earth can be a mandala so mandala really just means circle and it's a way of looking at the disparate component dynamics that arise in any seeming solid person, place, or thing. So one of the main points that's discussed in these images or or represented in these images are human emotions, like the difficult emotions that lead to invading other countries and Mm -hmm. pretending your neighbor isn't being abused and having affairs and things. So traditionally, the three root they're called uh, poisons but you know there's not that big of a deal <laughs> it's kind of operatic <laughs> the three root emotions that cause people trouble are called passion aggression and ignorance but basically like grasping or lusting for something you don't have fighting against what is happening and ignoring everything else but the mandala or the buddha families then break out into two additional difficult emotions which are called pride and envy so so basically ignorance aggression pride grasping and competition or jealousy are like the five root troublemakers in our lives. And those are depicted as what are called like Buddha families and, and family meaning sort of like a, a genus. And, mm. and, and you could look at it sort of almost like these, this, I think was first articulated in the eighth century. So it's something like an eighth century personality t- test. <laughs> so you can see like some people are like space cadets. They kind of live in a fog. They're sort of like, they would consider 
their main affliction would be kind of ignorance. Other people are hotheads. Other people are like always competing, you know, so on down the line. So, so it's a way of sort of seeing your personal style as a human being and how that shows up. Now, in the Western way of looking at things, in Western psychology even, there are negative emotions and positive emotions, and we want to have less of negativity, obviously, and feel more positivity. I grew up in Boulder, Colorado in the 80s, and so like, if you even mention negativity, people were like, ah, (laughs) like bad vibes, get out of here. Totally. Don't, Don't invite that in. So basically... What the Buddha family teachings do is say, okay, yeah, there are, there are these, the term that's used is afflictive, you know, they're, they're complex, they're difficult, they don't feel good. And when we believe these feelings, when we're compelled into action by the force of these energies, we go to war, we have affairs, we put people down, we steal, you know, we do backroom deals that disenfranchise, you know, the, the warehouse workers or all, all these kinds of things. Or we ignore problems or we deliberately commit ourselves to believing something that is demonstrably false. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's another way that ignorance can show up. So yeah, none of that's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I what I really think is fascinating about your book is that you're leading us through these concepts at least for me where I have only the very very most basic understanding of Buddhist thought is that you're giving us these huge ideas and kind of heavy things to think about. But then You frame it in such a beautiful way. I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that I found this book so engaging and also very funny. Like you had me laughing multiple times when you had references to Liz Fair. You mentioned a reference to one of my favorite movies, Clue, in I think within the first few pages. (laughs) So you, I know it's the best. So you, you really were able to frame it in ways that even someone like me could understand. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Right now, burnout is a really big thing. I feel like a lot of people I know are suffering from it. And for me, burnout manifests itself in days where all I want to do is just lie in bed and watch Netflix for hours. Does that ever happen to you? Please say yes. Life can be overwhelming, and many people are burned out without even knowing it. Symptoms can include lack of motivation, irritability, fatigue, and more. We normally associate burnout with work, but that is not the only cause. Any of our roles in life can lead us to feeling burnt out. BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself, and talking with someone can help you figure out what's causing stress in your life. I've used BetterHelp to connect with a therapist in less than 24 hours, and it was so nice to be able to begin talking via phone or chat right away. There was no waiting, no traveling, no sitting awkwardly in an office. And just knowing that my counselor was there for me in whatever way I was comfortable with reaching out, it was truly a priceless experience. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month of BetterHelp at betterhelp.com artcurious. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash artcurious. I begin my day every day with a cup of wonderful coffee. But actually, I need to back it up further because I take AG1 by Athletic Greens every morning before my first cup of coffee. 
Longtime listeners know that my health is important to me, and I do what I can to optimize my health and energy. But traditional vitamins, in pill form, are no fun, and they kind of bore me. I wanted something that tasted good and kept me going. So what is AG1? With one delicious scoop of AG1 from Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports everything from your gut health to your nervous system, your energy, focus, aging, and recovery. All the things. It is great. And now my family keeps asking if they can have their own serving of AG1 in the morning. Athletic Greens is the one thing with all the best things. It uses the best of the best products based on the latest science with constant product iterations and third-party testing. Athletic Greens was created when the founder experienced a ton of gut health issues and ended up on a complicated supplement routine to recover, and it cost him over $100 a day. So he created Athletic Greens after experiencing how difficult it was to have an optimal nutrition routine all on your own. But you don't have to take my word for it. You can take the opinions of others, because Athletic Greens has over 7,000 five-star reviews. It is time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It is just one scoop in a cup of water every day, and that is it. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com artcurious. Again, that is athleticgreens.com artcurious to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. So I wanted to know if you would be able to walk us through maybe one or two of your favorite artists and how you framed them within these different Buddha families in the book. Yeah, sure. So so like the other piece of this is I think like a good example is uh, Nikki de Saint-Fal, who I mentioned before. Now she's a French painter, sculptor, performance artist. And she was French royalty, basically, born into this very fancy family, the de saint And she was basically groomed from an early age to be the perfect hostess, wife, mother, you know, the ladies who lunch kind of a person. But, like, she had this fire in her to create. And in the chapter about her, I go into some quite grim difficulties that she experienced. She was abused. She was a victim of her cultural moment, you know, being a woman who wanted to create and express herself in 1950s, 1960s France. It was just not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, so she made this very bold move after getting married and having two children to leave her family. She realized that she would not be able to live the life of an artist, a free, an autonomous, creative person. At that time, if she was a wife and a mother, so she left her family, which was like completely beyond the pale. And what she discovered once she like left home and started working in this sort of garrity area of, I think it was like Montparnasse, like 
Brancusi was there and Jean Tangali, who she ended up married, marrying later was there. Duchamp would like swing by and they'd all have like tea and snacks and create <laughs> all the time. But she realized once she had the space to create that she was pissed off. She was full of this unexpressed, unexamined rage. Now, one of the Buddha families is called Vajra. This is the uh, Buddhist word. It means like a, a lightning bolt and it represents uh, anger. This is the affliction of, of, of aggression. So the other piece that I didn't really say when I was just describing, you know, the five negative emotions is that rather than saying, okay, well, stop being negative and be positive. That is not the message of the Buddha families. The message yes. of the Buddha families is this thing that you are calling anger in the case of Nikki de Saint-Fal, let's say, is also a wisdom. It's actually just an energy. It's just a life force of the universe. And as a human being, you are a conduit for it and there's no getting out of it. But that energy in its intensity, while it can be experienced negatively, is also a wisdom. So the five Buddha families are also called the five wisdom energies. So rather than like the opposite of, this is not like a pros and cons. So we don't go into the opposite of anger in the transformation or the wisdom energy. The wisdom energy of anger is called mirror-like wisdom. So the idea is like when you are pissed off, there is such an intense electricity. Like the like when we, you know, read the news that like abortion is maybe the the right to a safe abortion is maybe going to be overturned in this country. Right. Like it's electrifying how how enraged you are yes. at the injustice, the insanity, the short sightedness, whatever. But that energy is actually waking you up. Yeah. And you don't want to get rid of that energy because that's what's going to get you on the damn bus and making an awesome placard and cornering, you know, your senator in the in the elevator and getting some answers. Yes. So that has like a mirror-like quality in that it reflects clearly back what is actually going on free from your like a personal agenda or prejudices or whatever, that the energy of anger is so penetrating and vibrant that it kind of clears your mind and helps to direct you in a very specific way. And that kind of happened with her. She had this intense anger and she channeled it into her creativity. And in the book, I focus on this body of work, which were called tears, T-I-R-S, which is French for shooting. So she would make these white sculptures that were filled with pockets of vibrant paint, uh, kind of a bricolage thing, and then take a rifle and shoot the damn thing to bits so that <laughs> yes. the thing is then exploding and bleeding. And, and so suddenly, like this pent up anger is not being expressed as like fight, you know, kicking someone's ass in the street or becoming a, a hijacking a plane or whatever, but it is being uh, expressed in a way that's creative and communicative in a way that other people can relate to and is therefore compassionate. So, so there is like, you know, you can look at a painter like Edvard Munch, like that guy probably could have used some therapy. Yes. But like, <laughs> but like the, scream, the scream is like clearly articulating a very human experience that everyone can relate to, particularly in this day and age, and which is why it's so iconic and helpful. So he's, he, it is not a pleasant painting. No, uh, It's intense. It's horrifying. And, and, and it shows that art is not necessarily meant to be entertaining or decorative. It's meant to communicate, as you so rightly said, 
But that communication is a communication of this Buddha energy or this Buddha family energy of which there are five. I, so, oh, I'm yeah. Sorry. Please no, continue. no. So yeah, that's my little example. So Nikita Sanfal represents in my book, transforming anger or seeing anger as actually mirror-like wisdom. That was one of my favorite sections of the book, my favorite chapters, just because I knew a little bit about her work, but I was able to see her in a different way. And I love that idea of creative destruction or destructive creativity. I love the balance that you were able to put forward in the book, where I am starting to see things in those dualities, but they're not necessarily separate for one another, I think is what I'm trying to what I'm receiving from some of the book in that that positivity goes along with the negative, the negativity goes along with the positivity, and that we don't have to get rid of one or the other, that we are able to coexist with those disparate portions of our lives. I don't know if I'm making any sense, but yes, <laughs> yeah, to- to- totally. And that we can't get rid of them. Yes. And, in, and that like in trying to get rid of anger, then you're also getting rid of your clear seeing and your capacity to advocate and mobilize and and communicate and by getting rid of your pride you're actually getting rid of your ability to see that everything is rich and worthy and worthwhile and desi- and deserving of existence and when you get rid of your your lust it said that you're actually getting rid of your critical eye your ability to discern this from that so basically what's happening is or the way that it's sort of said is the degree to which you identify and attach a sense of yourself to your difficult emotion is the degree to which that emotion becomes negative and destructive. Mm. But when you can take a step back, give it more of a panoramic view, give that energy, that feeling more acreage, then it might actually feel the same. It might still feel intense, but then it's given free enough, uh, wide enough birth to to be expressive and utilized or engaged in a skillful and constructive way. So it's not like you're not going to feel mad anymore if you're a Buddhist or you're not going right. to like give somebody the eye. You're not going to stop being a person. Yes. The Buddha, the Buddha families are articulating different building blocks of what being a person is like, but it's also showing that nothing lasts that no emotion lasts. And so when we give, when we're not as reactive, when we we don't need to get a solid sense of ourselves from what we say and how we act and how we feel, then all of those feelings can come to play and become, dare I say, a palette through which we can skillfully express ourselves. Like an artist, you know, we can live artfully by utilizing the energy of the human psyche or whatever, however you want to articulate it, as tools that we can either share or in some cases stfu about because like, because <laughs> sometimes it's really not it's the, the buddhist view is like your feelings are your feelings mm. and of course you know people shout at us and do crazy things and legislation enrages us or whatever but like fundamentally the feelings are our feelings and we can take responsibility for them and and we do that through uh, familiarization through meditation contemplation and communication with each other. One of the things I'm glad you mentioned meditation because 
one of the things that I was also thinking about that you mentioned in the book is the idea of looking at art and enjoying art as a form of meditation. And I think there's been such a movement over the last maybe decade toward this idea of slow art. And you mentioned having these slow art experiences. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that fits into your your idea of meditation and your own meditation practice? Yes. So my my meditation practice is called Shikantaza. It's a it's an open awareness practice, which basically basically just means you sit there with all of your senses open, your eyes, you sit still and observe through awareness what arises, either in your like immediate environment or in your mind stream. And the Buddhist view is that those two things aren't actually as separate as you think they are. And my teacher, who's called Sokozan, he he teaches from the Sokokoji uh, Zen Monastery in Battle Creek, Michigan is also a graduate of the Art Institute of Chicago and has often used uh, secular art as a gateway into contemplation and uh, meditation. And so he had uh, has these workshops that he does called Opening the Eye Mind, where we sit in front of a, a canvas for like 20 minutes. Yeah. Now, most people spend 20 seconds right. tops looking at an artwork. And so what happens is you know, as you described, when people are like, well, what does it mean? What is it? What is this? The the great artist, Agnes Martin, who's in, in my featured in my book, she said, you know, from music, people accept pure emotion. They don't need to know what it means. They don't need to listen to Beethoven and be like, well, what's this? What's the takeaway? <laughs> what's You're just the sort story of like, here? <laughs> what's the through line? Yeah, exactly. Why did he do that? You just listen to the music. But from art, she said, people demand an explanation. Yeah. So that explanation part, that wanting their, wanting to conceptualize a creative piece of expression. And believe me, there's plenty of like conceptual art and underpinnings and reasons why people do stuff. But like, unless there's a placard, you're not going to know that. Right. You're just going to have the color, the form, the shape, the scale, the texture, whatever it happens to be. And when you spend a long period of time with an art object, what happens is you, or in my experience, what happens is you start to get really annoyed after about a minute. You're like, what, why, what? I'm bored. Yes. The, 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 that, that restlessness in Buddhism is called the self-centered mind or the ego mind, which wants like easy answers, takeaways, the, the Cliff's Notes version and quick results. You know, it, it, it's impatient. Yeah. But because when we feel like we don't know what's going on, we start to feel vulnerable. And when we feel vulnerable, we feel scared because it's probably, I don't know why, related to our fear of mortality or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But we're like, I don't know what's going on. I'm vulnerable and a velociraptor is going to eat. So <laughs> it's kind of like hardwired into who we are as you know animals. But looking at the art piece, eventually that restlessness and boredom falls away when it's not gratified by like going off to look at something else, it starts to actually subside because nothing lasts. Mm -hmm. And what you start to do, what starts to happen is that the visual field becomes dislodged from the kind of opinionator or the sort of uh, reporter or the, the, the pundit, you know, who's always like, well, I like that. I don't like that. Who the hell do they think they are? What's the point of this? That voice starts to subside on its own when it isn't immediately gratified. And then what you notice is that the visual field is not the same 
as that pundit. They actually are not inherently linked, that the eye actually doesn't know anything. That in fact, none of the sense faculties know anything. The senses never think, which is why like when you're stressed out, you know, trauma therapists and Buddhist teachers and all sorts of people are like, connect to your senses, go into your sense faculties, bring your attention into your senses because they are immediately linking you to your environment right now. It's the, the chattering mind that gets you kind of all tied up in knots. One thing I thought was really interesting that you mentioned that I'd never thought about before is this idea that something sensory is happening inside or outside your body and that visualizing using your sight is something that's seen as more external, whereas if you're tasting something, obviously, that's something that's of the body. And I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, it's the trickiest of the sense faculties, you know, vision, because we're all human beings are vision, visual, primary creatures for the most part for the sighted um but like as you say like sense of sound like that's your ear hammer vibrating that's like in you your taste buds are like interacting with some kind of uh material that's giving you flavor little pheromones and particles are going into your you know olfactory system in your head your nerve endings are like on your body, but then suddenly we've got like sense of sight. And we're like, oh, well, that's that thing over there that I don't like. <laughs> right, know? right. And there are fascinating studies about like, we know like what is actually happening. First of all, the lens of the, the eyeballs are an extension of the brain. So your brain is like poking out of your face. And then they're like, <laughs> everything's upside down. And yeah. somehow like, your yeah. eyes like flipping things upside down. And there are some scientists who say what we're actually, what we actually think we're seeing is not really happening. It's a shorthand and it's a neurological shorthand so that we can get the gist of things. Because if we actually saw everything that was going on, we would just go to bed for the rest of our lives. It would be too <laughs> overwhelmed. We wouldn't be able to operate. Right. So we fill in the blanks. We're seeing things upside down. It's like, it's all fakakta. <laughs> <laughs> And yet we assume that, we, that what we're seeing is should be taken at face value. Yes. And the way that we process the information is through light, which is happening inside of the brain. It's, it is actually much more interior and intimate and bespoke than we really understand. So when we take the time to look at art slowly, we're giving ourselves access to the visual field unencumbered by our preconceptions. Now, the other thing, like preconceptions kind of fall into the world of ignorance, which is called the, the Buddha family. And one of the misunderstandings of people who are interested in meditation or Buddhism is like, oh, well, if I become a Buddhist, then I'm just going to be really nice and I'm not going to have opinions anymore or negative thoughts or whatever. Not at all. What it's saying is that those preconceptions that we have, that's just like conditioning. We can't get out of that. You only notice those things after they've already happened, you know, so you can't like unhave the experience you just had. But if you allow the experience of seeing your own relative societal conditioning arise as like a racist thought or a misogynist thought or a homophobic thought or whatever it is, those sort of embarrassing things that happen, 
if you're giving it enough space, it's not going to go anywhere. It doesn't have anywhere to land. It doesn't need to be connected to your vocal cords and you don't have to crush it down. You can just leave it alone yeah. and, and see it as an art piece in a way. Ooh. So by spending time with art pieces for long periods of time, you just start to see the, the color, the texture. It starts to vibrate in a way like the visual field yes. really starts to pop off after 10 or 15 minutes. It's almost like hallucinatory, yeah. but you're just sitting there. And, and there's some kind of connection between the willingness and the ability to look at some seemingly external art object or even a person. It could work in that way too. Uh, past your preconceptions towards just the aesthetic bare bones of what that is, that relates to our feelings as well because we have all these feelings. Some of us deal with a lot of intense negativity and it might not be going anywhere. So wow. rather than fighting with what we call anxiety, which never works as anybody who's anxious knows, or whatever, your anger, your self-centeredness, your self-aggrandizement, your competitiveness, being willing to take another look at your own mind yes. requires the same attitude. And that attitude is an aesthetic one. It's the willingness to be like, I hate this painting, but I'm also going to look at it and see what it is and see the interplay between what is random, arbitrary shapes and color that's like triggering my anxiousness or my aggression or my dislike. <laughs> that's, a, that's an actual opportunity to learn something about myself. And similarly, when I'm sitting in meditation or just being still and quiet and my restlessness comes up, my impatience, my inadequacy, whatever... If I'm willing to look at that, if I'm willing to give that landscape the attention that I've given to like, I don't know, a Jeff, Cur a, jo a John Curran painting. He's up from my hometown and I, he's not my Yay. favorite. No, that's fine. He's fine with for anybody. But like some, some when I look at his paintings, I get like the heebie-jeebies. Yeah. Whatever. I get it. So what? <laughs> so like the thing is he, he might give me the heebie-jeebies, but I'll tell you my own mind gives me the heebie-jeebies. So if I am willing to look at it, at a painting that I don't like and be with that, that's preparing me to also look at my own mind uh, and see what I don't like there and also just appreciate it on aesthetic level, on an aesthetic level. Oh, I have to thank you so much because this, like I said, this book was very eye-opening for me. It continues to be eye-opening in that now that it has popped in my mind, all these thoughts that you've been able to share in wonderfully understandable and meaningful ways, I feel like I'm understanding the world in a different way. Um, maybe it's still very surface in that I'm not studying very deeply into, into Buddhist thought and, and practice right now, but I am truly seeing everything around me in a different way and art, especially in a different way. That was something I wanted to thank you on, especially also, is that you've chosen such a wide variety of artists from different time periods and backgrounds and geographical cultures, so that I really feel like you are putting forward this idea that it can be understood and expressed wherever you are and whatever you are doing, whatever you are consuming, you can understand these concepts. Totally. And I think that's the fundamental message is like one of permission. We're all allowed to look at art. There's a siren going off, but I'm in New York. <laughs> it's a part of the landscape. Exactly. Like, we're all allowed to look at art. It belongs to everybody. Yes. And everyone is a allowed to study the Dharma. Everyone is allowed to contemplate Buddhist teachings. You don't even have to become a Buddhist. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Like, however it meets you is completely authentic, appropriate, and, and that we deserve it. It's our birthright to, to really look uh, at our world and to appreciate it. 
I love this so much. And I love this conversation. And again, this book was truly beautiful and fun and funny and smart. And I want to thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much. It's been a real honor. I I love your podcast. Oh, oh my gosh. Thank you so much. (laughs) Mutual Admiration Society. Yay. Um, Thank you, Art Curious listeners, for being part of my interview with Kevin Townley today. If you are so inclined and have the means, I highly recommend that you buy a copy of Look, 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 Look Again, Buddhist Wisdom Reflected in 26 Artists. You can find on my website links to both bookshop.org and Amazon if you would like to participate in purchasing there, which will also help our podcast at the same time as the authors. So check those out. And in the meantime, Check back with us shortly for more interviews coming up later this summer and stay curious.